you have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do, uh, please turn to Acts 17. We'll be uh, finishing up Acts chapter 17. We, uh, we've been moving through the book of Acts. It's been a great time. I can speak for myself. I've really enjoyed it. It's been an encouragement, and we'll be uh, continuing on through the book of Acts. I've titled uh, our sermon this morning, I've titled our sermon, Switch Pitching the Gospel. Switch pitching the gospel. It's a bit of an odd term if you're not familiar with what switch pitching is. I'm not a baseball guru, but it's a baseball term. And it was made famous most recently by a guy named Pat Vendetti. He's a switch pitcher. He's ambidextrous. It means he's equally strong with both hands. He, uh, if you've never heard of being ambidextrous, about 1% or a little less than 1% of the population apparently are ambidextrous. You can write with both hands equally good. If you want to test how ambidextrous you are, try brushing your teeth with the opposite hand. You may lose an eye, but that's how you tell if you're ambidextrous. But Pat Vendetti is ambidextrous. He, he's good with both hands. He can throw strong with both hands, over 90 miles an hour. Because, I mean, I'm a switch pitcher. I can throw with both hands. One hand is maybe average, uh, and the other is abysmal. I mean, it's like a baby deer coordination right out of the womb. But Vendetti shows incredible versatility. This isn't just a mirrored picture you're seeing on the screen. This is him pitching with both hands. He has a a six-fingered baseball glove that in the middle of the game, he could switch hands and pitch to a different batter with the other hand uh, in order to throw them off or to uh, maybe work things in his favor. But it shows incredible versatility. And this morning, as we go through Uh, The rest of chapter 17 in the book of Acts, we see the Apostle Paul showing uh, equally incredible versatility in his message uh, and his methods. He is switch-pitching the gospel. So to catch up with Paul, he was, uh, last week we were with him in Thessalonica and Berea. He went into the synagogues and he preached the gospel. Uh, He anchored what he was saying in scriptures But he was chased out of town, and now he's waiting for his friends in Athens. He's waiting for Timothy, he's waiting for Silas. And while he's in Athens, just a very different culture than there was in Thessalonica and Berea, he's not seeing the sights. He's not checking out all that there is in uh, Athens and hunkering down. He's not taking a little vacation while he waits for his buddies. He is getting to work, and he is sharing the gospel. And so we'll see throughout our passage as we work through it this morning. Our big idea, both for Paul and for our application, is this. Boldly and clearly point people to the only true God. Boldly and clearly point people to the only true God. That's what we'll see Paul do, and that's what we can take away from this, to boldly and clearly point people to the only true God. Last week, we considered how Paul is present with people, and we're going to see the same thing this morning. We see within a few verses, he goes to the Jewish synagogue, he's in the marketplace, and then he goes to the Areopagus, uh, where he talks with philosophers. He is boldly, uh, yet respectfully, pointing to God, and he confronts a major problem in their society, in first century Athens, in our society today, which is idolatry or worshiping idols. This is a famous passage, a really popular passage in the book of Acts. You uh, 
maybe are familiar with it. But as we go through it, keep your eye out for a few things. We're going to see Paul do it. And again, we can apply this just like the big idea. We see, we'll see Paul opening up his eyes. We'll see Paul opening up his heart. And we'll see Paul opening up his mouth. And we can do the same. Those are our three points. If you're writing things down, I'd encourage you to do so. Open your eyes, open your heart, and open your mouth. I pray that we could all learn to do that. And I know, though, on the other end of this camera, there's a variety of people listening. You may be sitting there thinking, I don't, I'm, what's this all about? You may be sitting there with a Stoic's criticism. You may be sitting there with a hunger to grow. You may be religious, not religious. You may be a Christian, not a Christian. But I pray that we would all leave this morning with a bigger picture of who God is. With a clear picture of this hope, the hope of the gospel, and a motivation to share that gospel, to open our mouths. Now, the city of Athens in the first century was still a prominent place. It kind of, uh, we're in the shadow of maybe Athens at its peak a few centuries earlier, but Athens is still a happening place. It's a prominent intellectual, cultural center. There's grand buildings, art, temples. And we see Paul was just kind of dropped into this city. He had to flee, and all of a sudden he's in this new city. And to our knowledge, this is the first time Paul's been in Athens. I wonder, have you ever experienced something like this where you've been dropped into a new place? I mean, I know there's a number of people listening who have come to this country from other countries for a variety of reasons, but having to start from scratch, start fresh. Maybe you've even had to come and flee a country. I don't have that experience, but maybe some of us can resonate like me with maybe starting a new job, moving into a new house, uh, maybe going to a new school. And I don't know what your strategy was or what your technique was when you were dropped into an unfamiliar place. I know my unwise strategy in a lot of ways was to kind of just duck my head, get a lay of the land, feel things out, and keep my mouth shut. But this was not Paul's style. He was dropped into this new area, and he didn't just hunker down. Why? Well, we see it's because he opened up his eyes. And so that's our first point. Open your eyes. He wasn't struck by the beauty or the brilliance of this city, but he was struck by idolatry. So let's read Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them, so that's Timothy and Silas, while he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now multiple first century authors verify, and they, they have all kind of said this in a different way, that it was easier to find a God than a man in Athens. It was easier to find a God than a man. The city was full of idols. The city was full of idols. The word Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, the, the word Luke uses here for full is not a common Greek word, but it could almost be described as smothered, smothered or swamped or swarming. Well, didn't even mean to do the little alliteration there, but swamped, smothered, swarming with idols. And Paul sees this, and we'll see that in a little bit, he contrasts this idolatry, this idol worship with the living God. But let's hunker down here for a little bit. What do you think of when you hear the word idols? What do you think of when you hear the word 
idols. I know my default position is to think of idols as objects of worship, little statues maybe, or maybe even big statues, and maybe that's what you think. And that, that is what idols were. That is what they are. But idols are more than that. Idols are anything, anything that take the place of God in your life. Idols are anything that take the place of God in your life. And so you can make an assessment on your own life. You can say, what, are, what, what is the thing or what are the things that if I lost them, they would derail me? What would that be? Maybe, maybe it's things. Maybe it's your car. Maybe it's your house. Maybe it's your toys. But maybe it's not a thing. Maybe it's something more like your job, your identity, your looks, your money, pleasure, success, reputation, your family even. Maybe even just you. Maybe you could just boil it down to that. Tim Keller, uh, in his really helpful book, Counterfeit Gods, he gives us some categories for idol worship, for idolatry. He says there's two main categories. There's surface idols and there's root idols. Surface idols and root idols. So the surface idols, that's anything. Right? That could be whatever that, that thing is that you're, you're worshiping or you're putting in God's place. So that could be social media or your phone. But the root idols, so that's the surface idols, the root idols are the deeper desires of your heart. And he then boils that into a few more categories. Uh, one, fame or approval. Two, power or control. Or three, comfort and security. Fame and approval, power and control, comfort and security. Those are the root idols, the desires of our heart. And so phone addiction is not a good thing. Right? There's something chemically going on where we are addicted to this thing. But it's less about the actual device. It's less about the surface idol. Right? The reason why your screen time is ten times your devotional time is because of the root idols. And it might be different for all of you. Again, fame, approval, power, control, comfort, security, maybe all of the above, but that's what we're looking for. That's what we're worshiping when that thing becomes an idol. In the U.S., in 2008, when the stock market crashed, several financial bigwigs and CFOs, CEOs, they lost hope, and they took their own lives. Now, why, why is that? Why did that happen? It's because their God had died. Right, what they were worshiping, what they were, they were giving all glory to was their wealth and their success. Right, they were pushing all their chips in onto something that couldn't handle that kind of weight. And so I would ask you, whether you're a Christian or not, answer this question. What do you love with all your heart? What do you love with all your heart? Maybe you know the answer. If you're a Christian, maybe you're thinking, oh, I know the I got this. No, but honestly, look at your own life. What do you love most? What do you love with all your heart? Where is your allegiance? Where is your hope? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? A good way to look, what about your emotions? What makes you happy? What makes you happiest? What makes you anxious? Matt Papa talks about our emotions this way. It says, our emotions are like smoke from the fire of the altar of the true God we worship. 
Our emotions are like the smoke from the fire of the altar of the true God we worship. So again, Paul's going to address idols in a moment, but but we need to stop here and think and look at our own lives. What am I worshiping? Where does my time, energy, money, and emotions go? And I would encourage you, and I'm saying this right into a mirror back to myself, stop wagering your soul on a glory so small. You can have things, but you can't let things have you. You can love your family. Scripture commands it. But don't worship relationships. These things can't hold that kind of weight. We look at Mark 8.36. It says this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And so look at the world around us. Open your eyes. Right? It wouldn't take a long walk through our city or a lot of clicks through social media for us to come to the same conclusion as those first century authors in Athens. There's more evidence of idolatry here than people. And so like Paul, we need to open up our eyes. We need to see the idolatry in our world around us, like he did in his walk through Athens but also in our own hearts. And so today, I would encourage you, uh, maybe right after the service, maybe while you're eating lunch, maybe at dinner, maybe this week with your community groups or your discipleship groups, ask one another, what idols do you see in the world? What are these things that we're worshiping? We've become so desensitized, but what idols do you see in the world? And on a more zoomed-in level, what idols do you see creeping into your own heart? You know, what of those root idols, fame, approval, power, control, comfort, security, what are those things that that most naturally come up for you? Because whether you're a Christian or not, we don't have a problem or an inability to worship God. Our problem is that we're way too distracted with everything else. We're way too distracted. G.K. Chesterton says this so well. When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. And so this is what Paul is seeing. He's seeing idolatry everywhere. And this isn't a first century problem. This is a sin problem. This is a human problem. So Paul's eyes are open and he is moved. And so he opens up his heart. Open your eyes, open your heart. We see right there in verse 16, Paul, his spirit was provoked. Uh, I feel like a 21st century version of that would maybe be triggered or rattled. But Paul's heart is showing here. Now why is he provoked or moved? Why is he, what's, what's happening here? Well, I think he's provoked for a few different reasons. First, I think Paul is motivated by his love for others. I've shared this quote before. Mark Dever has a great book on evangelism, the gospel and personal evangelism. He says this, According to the Bible, good motives for evangelism are a desire to be obedient, a love for the lost, and a love for God. A desire to be obedient, a love for the lost, and a love for God. 
Paul knows what it's like to have everything, but to have no hope. He had it all. He had success. He had a reputation. He had education. He had authority. He had power. But he was missing Christ. Flip back a few chapters in Acts if you want a refresher on the story of Paul's conversion. But he had it all except for Christ. And so he's moved here not as an enemy of the Athenians. He is moved here as a fellow pilgrim. As D.T. Niles famously said, evangelism is like one beggar showing another beggar where to find food. One beggar showing another beggar where to find food. Not waving a finger, not condemning, but as a fellow pilgrim. And so he's moved by his love for lost people. And he's being obedient. He's being obedient in his, his love for God. He loves God and God loves people. Like we sang in the song right before this, we said, lead me in your love to those around me. He knows God loves these people. I love God. I have a desire to be obedient. He had a message. He had a mandate. Just like us, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he was also motivated by his desire to see God worshipped. God is worthy to be praised. Again, like we sang, worthy of every song we will ever sing. Worthy of every breath we will ever breathe. God is worthy to be praised. He said, holy, there is no one like you. Holy, there is none beside you. Open up my eyes with wonder. He is the only one that deserves that kind of worship and devotion. And so Paul's provoked feeling is most echoed and most, we see it most like in Scripture with how God feels about idol worship. God was similarly provoked with a righteous anger in the Old Testament. Right? He saw the Israelites worshiping idols. And he knows what's best for his children. So kids, this is like when your mom or dad tells you to do something that's very important. And if you disobey, it upsets them. But it upsets them because they love you dearly. And they know what's best for you. And how much more true is this of our Heavenly Father who loves and cares for us? And so Paul is upset that God isn't being worshipped. And so how does he react? Does he throw his hands up in the air? Does he freak? Does he start punching idols in the face? No. His heart for people dictates a change in method. This is his gospel switch pitching. Right? He's switching hands. Rather than the way he preached the gospel to the Thessalonians, to the Bereans, and others... You know, reasoning from the Old Testament, reasoning from Scripture. Now he uses Greek culture to bridge this gap. He meets people where they're at. So if we read verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So we see Paul's ministry resembles Jesus' own ministry. He proclaims the gospel to the religious, the not religious, the rich, the poor, the men, the women, the Jew, the Greek. And this type of ministry, I mean, that's something we need to desire. 
Because this is just a taste of eternity. Look at Revelation 5 or Revelation 14. Every tribe, language, people, nation, tongue will worship Jesus. So Paul's eyes are open. His heart is open. And so what does he do next? Well, he opens up his mouth. So that's our third point. Open your mouth. Paul is present with people, right? We see him reasoning with people in the synagogue, the Jews, and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Whoever was wandering through, that's who Paul met. And continuing on, verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so Paul... He's in the synagogues, he's in the marketplace, he starts chatting with these philosophers. Now, Epicureanism, we don't have a time for a deep treatment here, but it was founded by Epicurus in 3rd century BC. It affirms a materialistic worldview. Pleasure is the greatest good in life. But not pleasure in an idea of self-gratification, but rather living modestly and gaining knowledge. Stoics, on the other hand, they were pantheistic. They believed in the divinity and the unity of all things. They wanted to maintain harmony with nature, avoid destructive emotions. Now, that's probably sending off little triggers in your mind, thinking that's not that different than a lot of modern worldviews. I'd agree with you. But we see some mocked him. They called him a babbler. This is an insult. Uh, Translated means a seed picker or a seed-picking bird with the idea or the the connotation that it's someone that just picks up random ideas or useless information and then shares it with all to hear as a a know-it-all. We were watching, we spent a lot of time in Cinderella this week. We were watching Cinderella in the original 1950 Cinderella. I think of that scene where Gus Gus is trying to get the food, the seeds or the little corn kernels, and the chickens are coming and they're picking up all the, maybe that's ringing true, maybe you remember that scene, maybe you don't. But that's what I think of when I hear seed pickers. And so that's what they're calling him, saying, you're picking up this useless information, you're scattering it, you're a know-it-all. And so we may too be mocked, we may too be called names. Have you ever been accused of being a seed picker of sorts, of believing in fairy tales? I like that Luke gives a bit of a jab against the Athenians in verse 21. It says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. So he's pretty much accusing the Athenians and the other foreigners there of being seed pickers themselves. I would say this is pretty true in our world too. We don't have to look far to see that we, we gather theories, our news, our ideas from social media or wherever, and all of a sudden everyone's an expert on everything. But this is the stage that is set where Paul launches into his sermon or his defense. He's at the Areopagus, and so the Areopagus was an aristocratic body. They exercised jurisdiction in the religious and moral fields. 
Uh, it was also a place, uh, a place, Areopagus meaning the hill of Ares, or depending if you were talking to a Greek or a Roman, uh, Mars Hill you may have heard of. And so people think it was on this rock, Mars Hill. If you Google it this afternoon, give it a Google, you'll see this big rock, this kind of hill. This is where it's happening, and this is who it's happening in front of, the Areopagus. But we'll see, Paul anchors his defense in history and not, in fact, in scattered seeds. And so just like last week, as we looked at the gospel and we categorized it as God, man, Christ response, we see that Paul starts with God. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, religious here could mean devout, like a positive thing, or it could mean superstitious, like a negative kind of thing. Maybe both. Continuing on, verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And so Paul starts his defense with contrasts. He says, you worship the unknown, I worship the known. I worship a God who makes, not one who is made. And kids, back to our catechism questions. What is God? God is the creator of everyone and everything. Again, it's hard not to sing that. But God is the creator of everyone and everything. This is the God who Paul proclaims. He says, God directs. He is not directed. And this is what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. God is in control of everyone and everything. And Paul traces his steps all the way back to Adam. He says, God made every nation from one man, and he controls all things. He also says, God is near, not far. He is not unknown. The words that Paul uses in verse 26 is like a blind man, you know, reaching out in the darkness. Humanity searches for God, but God doesn't keep himself at a distance. Humanity searches for God, but God actually makes himself close to his people, near to his people. Now, these claims are flying right in the face of the Epicureans, of the Stoics. But Paul's not being obnoxious here. He's, he's being clear. He's answering what they asked. They essentially said, what's your deal? In verse 19, they said, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? And so he's being clear, but, and he's not soft-peddling. He even goes and he quotes two non-biblical poets to reinforce his arguments. Paul is educated. He, he knows stuff, but he doesn't use these things as authoritative. He uses them as bridges. 
It's a good reminder for us to be real with people. Be real with people. Meet them where they're at. Now, what I'm saying, this is not the gospel according to the office or the Enneagram or pop culture or Lord of the Rings. It's not any of that. I mean, I think the office is hilarious, but it can't be the foundation. If you can use it as a bridge for people, cool, but it can't be the foundation. Again, as we sang about, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And so neither is Paul making this poetry a foundation. He is proclaiming the God of history. But he's proclaiming the God of history that makes sense to his audience. And so again, this is, this is Paul's version of switch pitching the gospel. Switch pitching the gospel. First Corinthians 9, 20 through 23 says this, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, this requires a lot of caution and discernment. And if you hear sermons or messages that are anchored in anything other than God's word, run the other way. But it isn't wrong to build bridges with people. Paul shows us that. So continuing on, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. We are God's offspring. God made us. Again, we did not make him. I love Paul's implication here, saying that God's creation is so much greater than even man's creation of supposed gods. God's creation of people is miles beyond whether stone or silver or gold, this creation of so-called gods. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God, in his mercy, hasn't immediately struck down humanity for rebelling against him. Paul calls for repentance. We will all be held accountable for our actions. We will all be held accountable for rebelling. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, what's what's with this judgment talk? I thought we were talking about God's love here. What's with this judgment talk? And I agree, judgment is bad news apart from Christ. Judgment is bad news apart from Christ. But if we consider a judge, even an earthly judge, a fair judge holds people accountable. And we all have sinned. We all have turned our own way saying, this is my idol, I am my idol. And so we all deserve this judgment because we have all sinned. 
But as Paul proclaims here, God didn't just say, oh, man, they blew it. Right? God in his mercy sent his son Jesus to come and live a life without sin. Live a life without sin. A life we could never live. And to pay the penalty for our sin. To, to exchange his righteousness for our wrongs. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a radical exchange. But God did this in his mercy. Right? Not once we got our act together. But Romans 5.8 says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God knew we blew it. He knew we turned our own way. But this exchange happened. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. It's grace alone that saves. We can't work our way to salvation. William Temple says this, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And so amazingly, Jesus paid that penalty. He bore my sin. He bore Paul's sin. He bore these philosophers' sin. He bore your sin. And we need to turn and trust in Jesus. Jesus who rose on the third day, right, demonstrating God's wrath had been satisfied. Right? The debt is paid, paid in full, if we only repent and believe in Jesus. And so God will judge, but there is an unshakable, unshakable hope, and that is Jesus Christ. So maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you've heard it a hundred times, but maybe you've never had that response. Maybe you've never repented and believed and accepted this sacrifice, this exchange that happens. Whoever invited you to watch this live stream, reach out to them. Reach out to us. We would love to talk more about this. If you have questions, confront those questions. But today could be the day where you, you turn your life, like Paul's life was changed, like others' lives were changed, like our so many here at this church lives were changed because of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so some have criticized Paul here. They say, did he really share the gospel? That was kind of a brief account. Didn't seem like it quite hit all the markers there. But a few things we can be aware of throughout this. Luke's account is likely a highlight reel of Paul's account. Right? These are kind of the high points, and we can kind of fill in the gaps. We can think that for a few reasons. We see Paul preached the resurrection of Jesus we can assume that Paul preached Christ's sacrifice if he preached the resurrection. We also know from multiple accounts of how long the Areopagus sessions were, multiple hours, hours, hours on end. And so, you know, we can't know for sure, but I doubt Paul went for 30 seconds. Right? Even looking a few chapters ahead to when Paul's preaching, uh, and he preaches for hours on end, he goes right till midnight, and there's a young man named Eutychus who actually falls asleep during Paul's sermon and falls out a window. If you've never read that far into Acts, don't let me lose you here. We'll get there in a couple weeks. Okay, because that's a distracting <laughs> interjection there. But we can assume Paul likes to, I mean, he values brevity, but he can preach for quite some time. But we also see that he's interrupted, uh, which may have cut things shorter as well. Let's keep reading verse 30. 
32 through 34, the rest of the chapter. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So we see three responses there, three responses. There's outright rejection, there's interest without commitment. Outright rejection, interest without commitment, and belief. So don't be surprised if these similar rejections or or similar responses are happening to you. Outright rejection, interest without commitment, or belief. There may be people on the other end of this camera right now that are in all three of those categories. And so you may be mocked. You may spark interest, or God may use your humble efforts, and he may save souls through it. But let's learn from Paul. He opened up his eyes. He opened up his heart. And that led him to open up his mouth and boldly and clearly, like our big idea said, point to God. Now, Charles Spurgeon is often, he's, he likes the illustration of a lion. He's used that illustration a lot of times. And all of his kind of quotes have been compiled into this paraphrase kind of quote, which he never said. But here's one that he actually said about talking about defending a lion. He said, they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that that would be the best way of defending him. For he would take care of himself. And the best apology or defense for the gospel would be to let the gospel out. This is what Paul does. He points to God. Right? He lets the gospel out. And we can admire Paul's versatility. right? Just like Pat Vendetti, switch pitching. We see versatility here. But maybe you think, man, I can't do that. That's not me. God has given you everything you need to do the same. He's given you his spirit. Pray for boldness. Pray for wisdom. Pray for versatility. Because humanity has a universal problem. The first century Athenians and us today, whether they're rich, poor, religious, not, sin is the problem. So everybody you meet needs the gospel. Your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors, that person at the gas station, the teller at the bank, the person begging your groceries, and you. We all need the gospel. We look at Jesus' life. He was grieved by the idolatry in Jerusalem. Paul was provoked from the idolatry in Athens. Are you similarly provoked by the idolatry in our world and the idolatry in your own heart? John Stott says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's counter to this idolatry, right? The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. We are worshiping the wrong thing, while the essence of salvation is is God substituting himself for man. And so I don't know about you, I'd say we all have work to do in this. But let's look to God who created and sustains everyone and everything. He is not small. He is not made by human hands, by human minds. But he's also close, and he offers hope. Hope beyond our imagination. 
So let's confront the idols in our lives, the idols in our world, and share the good news of God substituting himself for man. How could we possibly worship anything else? Let's pray.